Katie Antopoulos, and this is Hayes Brown, and welcome to a technically one hour earlier edition of AM to DM. Good morning, guys. Katie, how did you spend your extra hour this weekend? Um, you know, I uh, spent it in quiet meditation and reflection in my Hayes and Katie AM to DM shrine, oh. just like manifesting a good show today. Nice, nice. Mm -hmm. Totally normal. Totally normal. I mean, yeah. I would have done the same if I didn't know you had it covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, I in got it. In my household, mm -hmm. uh, we spent... Uh, the we the extra hour obsessed with the drop of Ariana Grande's new single "Thank You Next," which dropped half an hour before SNL over the weekend. My girlfriend is a stan, and so we wound up listening to it several times. I will say several here. Okay, I did not listen to it at all. I saw no? like a headline about it, so I know it exists. Mm -hmm. I just didn't actually listen to the song. Okay, let me give you a quick recap okay. of TLDR. So Pete and Ariana broke up a few weeks ago. Uh, last week, he made a joke about their relationship in the promo for the upcoming Saturday Night Live. And then hours before it dropped, uh, hours before the SNL episode aired, we get this song, which isn't really a diss track, it's more of a thank you track to all of her exes, Big Sean, this dancer named Ricky, uh, uh, Pete Davidson, and the late Mac Miller, really just saying, you know, thank you for all the things you put me through, because I'm doing better now. Um, it sounds like that was a passive-aggressive move, but also very <laughs> mature, you know, to be like, thank you. Petty thank but you. positive is really the vibe that we're yeah. going for in 2018. In the process, there were, though, some very confused fans who thought that Ariana was seeing someone new already, like BuzzFeed's own Alp Selick, who tweeted, Who is Aubrey? Do so, you, did you hear about this? No, who is Aubrey? Well, Aubrey, it turns out, is within all of us. No, I'm kidding. Aubrey, <laughs> Aubrey doesn't exist. It's not Drake like some people thought. It's actually just Ariana Grande. In the lyrics, she says, her name is Ari, about the new person she's seeing because she's dating herself for a while. Uh, yeah, right? Okay, and people just misheard? Exactly, because uh, Ariana's not known for her enunciation. So I remain skeptical of this whole move, mm -hmm. um, but I did see this tweet from BuzzFeed News' Julia Reinstein that I think summed up the vibe mm -hmm. um, after this song dropped. Um, so many people are going to text their exes something <laughs> reckless tonight, and it's all Ariana Grande's fault. That is, I think, 100% true. Like, send your blame to her. All right, Twitter, that sounds like a mess in the making, and we do want to hear from you. Did you or someone you know hit send on a whim after hearing this new bop? Or do you just wish you had? Tweet us at AM to someone please take my phone away. <laughs> <laughs> so shifting gears, uh, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Trump is putting the last sanctions lifted under the Iran nuclear deal back in place. This is the latest move in the Trump administration's bid to roll back the terms of the Iran deal, which the president has called one of the worst in history, even as our allies try to hold the whole thing together. Joining us to talk about what these sanctions mean and how they're playing out with their enemies and friends alike is BuzzFeed News State Department correspondent Emily Tampkin. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Hayes. Good morning, Katie, from a very rainy day here in D.C. <laughs> okay, so to start out, though, what exactly are these sanctions being placed on Iran today, Emily? So these are the last of the sanctions um, being reimposed under the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal, plus some new designations. Basically, it's part of the president's maximum pressure campaign on Iran, the central point of which is economic pressure. Um, and these sanctions are important specifically because they go after um, Iran's ability to export crude oil, which was sort of the main boon for or one of the main boons for Iran to stay in this deal, which um, the European signatories to the deal are really trying to keep together. So why are these being put on now? 
Oh, so when um, President Trump announced back in the spring that he was pulling the U.S. out of the JCPOA, they gave a 180-day uh, wind-down period so that countries could take their, could get their Iranian crude ex imports, excuse me, imports down to zero. Um, and so that, that period is now up. Um, and here we are in November. Countries have either uh, gotten down to zero or, or canceled imports, and, and companies have already announced that they are um, that they're pulling out of Iran. I think that uh, that Pompeo this morning said something like two and a half billion dollars Iran has already missed because of uh, just the threat of economic pressure, right? Just the threat of these sanctions. Um, but that's why here in November we're once again talking about sanctions on Iran imposed by the United States. So how do the rest of the people who are part of this deal, the United Kingdom, the European Union, Germany, France, Russia, China, how do they feel about these new sanctions being put back into place, these sanctions being put back into place? Yeah, they're displeased. Um, first of all, they did not get, uh, they did not get waivers, right? So eight, well, seven countries and one Taiwan um, got exemptions, either because they so cut down on their oil imports from Iran or because they have said, just give us a few more weeks and we'll get to zero. Um, but the only European countries that are in there are Italy and Greece, right, who are not the countries you just mentioned. They're not signatories to the GCPOA, unless you consider that they're in the EU, which is. Um, European com countries have really tried to keep this deal together, even without the United States. And one of the main ways that they're doing that is to say to Iran, listen, we're going to keep this profitable. We're going to continue to make this worth it for you. It is difficult for them to do that with the U.S. threatening to sanction their companies, right? And the, the largest importers of Iran can still import, albeit at a decreased rate, because India, China, they got the waivers. But the, the idea of um, companies, European companies being under threat from the United States and therefore not being able to work with Iran, not being able to import Iranian crude, that's a prestige blow for Iran, right? They were doing business with Europe and now there's threat of sanctions should European companies do that. So the Europeans have been very clear that they want to keep the JCPO, JCPOA together and further that they see this as a threat to European sovereignty. So how is this affecting actual people in Iran? Secretary Mnuchin, both today and Friday when he, he made these um, announcements, stressed that this is about the Iranian regime and not the Iranian people and that humanitarian trade can still go through. That said, economic sanctions put economic pressure on the people who live in the country, right? Like that, that is just what they do. And in fact, it's what they're designed to do. Um, and, you know, I think there are some who would say that when you have an administration that's saying, oh, well, we stand with the people of Iran and we, we ask them to stand up and, and, and uh, be counted against their government, but those same people, you know, under the Trump administration's travel ban will find it difficult, if not impossible, to come to the United States. It, it, it's hard for some to see how this administration isn't being hard just on the Iranian regime, but also on the Iranian people. So Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was on Face the Nation yesterday talking about these new sanctions. Uh, he said that the U.S. is confident that Iran won't restart its nuclear program over these sanctions. Do you agree with that? I, uh, you know, it would be loath to make a prediction that could be proven incorrect, but I, I, I don't have the confidence or the swagger to use his parlance <laughs> of Mike Pompeo. Um, you know, if if... If you're saying, if, if Iran has said, we will stay in the JCPOA for as long as it is profitable and beneficial to Iran, and you were doing everything that you can to break up this deal, right, and to make it not profitable and not beneficial for Iran, at some point, those two things come into conflict.
Emily, so what do you, would you say is the best and worst case scenario as an outcome of these sanctions? I think that depends on who you ask. If you ask the Europeans, best case scenario, they find a way to keep this deal together, right? They have, they have their little channels set up. Iran stays in the deal. The deal continues. If you ask the United States, um, Iran and Russia and China, who are also signatories to the JCPOA, and the European unions all come back to the table and they make a more robust deal and Iran completely changes its behavior. Um, again, those two things are also in conflict, as are the United States and its European allies on a lot these days. Emily, you also had another story come out this weekend, one that ties into midterm, midterm coverage. You tracked how George Soros went from a billionaire nobody really paid attention to into a real boogeyman around the world. So where did Soros, the myth as you referred to it, really begin? Sure. So um, Soros throughout the 90s had been involved in philanthropy and civil society building, in, specifically in Eastern Europe. Um, it was in the early 2000s that he won backed NGOs and figures who were involved in the color revolutions in Georgia um, specifically, and also got involved in U.S. politics insofar as he gave a bunch of money against George Bush, whose with us or against us rhetoric, he is somebody who had seen um, the uh, you know, Nazis and, uh, and, and, and Soviet rule um, was very uncomfortable with. So now you have a person who's kind of got the attention of both Russia, right, and certain U.S. political figures. And since then, because of certain formal channels like lobbyists who are employed by the Hungarian government to work here, because of social media, um, because of certain right-wing media figures who have found these different theories and picked them up, these rumors and conspiracy theories and myths have sort of bounced back and forth across the ocean, really reaching a fever pitch here in 2018 in America. Um, so, Emily, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, coming up next, we're going to fire tweets. Stay tuned, everyone. Fire! Fire! Hi, guys. Welcome back. Before we get into fire tweets, we had a tweet from one of you that we just had to read out on air from Princess Leia, but abolishing ice. I now stand Emily C. Tampkin as a hand talker. I love how she illustrates her points with her hands. It is my fave thing in the entire world. I want to listen to her and watch her talk about sanctions forever. And you know what? I feel the same about Emily and her hand talking. Yeah. I feel like a real bond with her. Yeah, I like it. I like it. All right, um, on to your tweets. It's uh, time for some fire tweets. Yes. All right, are you ready? Yes. This one's gonna be good. It's gonna okay. be extra good. Okay. Hayes Brown, you tweeted. <laughs> Guy who invented daylight savings time. And then in the fall, you get an extra hour of sleep. Us. Well, yeah, that sounds great. Him. And in exchange, you get months of darkness and sadness. Us. Wait, what? Him. What? Wow, yeah. People <laughs> had some feelings about that tweet, by the way. Yeah. There's a lot of daylight saving thoughts out there. Uh, a lot of people yelling me about the fact that it's now standard time, which I get, and framed the joke accordingly, people. I understand the times. Nothing worse than a daylight savings nag. Right? You Thank know? you. I get it enough from Apple. Okay, moving forward. <laughs> Next up from Jesus Nice. Uh. Daylight savings time is how the government keeps us too depressed to revolt. And you know what? I agree, Jesus. I agree, Jesus. Yeah. 
it's a, just a sign of the man keeping us down with his farm labor, et cetera. Yeah, seasonal affect disorder. It's real. It's, it's real. real in these streets. Um, all right, Louis Vertel, you tweeted. The best part of being a flight attendant has to be when you walk the aisle saying trash <laughs> to everyone's face. That is exactly how they say it on every flight I'm on. Yeah. I thought it was just me. No. Well, no. Well, they say that especially to you. Oh. <laughs> okay, next tweet. Jordan Nardino, you tweeted. Next week has been exhausting. What a mood for 2018. Holy cow. I'm tired already. I am also, I'm a ghost. <laughs> um... So today's tweet of the day is brought to you by Disney's Ralph Breaks the Internet in theaters November 21st, and it comes to you from Alex Russell. Here we go. Ugh. If someone views your Instagram story, it means they're sorry for everything they put you through and they'll do whatever it takes to become a big part of your life again. Oh, that's true, I hear. <laughs> I hear that is true. Yeah, it's definitely what happened if you, you know, got inspired by Ariana Grande and texted your exes. Completely the case. And for those of you wondering, that is Yas. She is the head of algorithm and the heart of trends and trend making in the new uh, Ralph Freaks the Internet. Uh, so really, we should get her on this show at some point, just live in studio. Yeah, you know, the, uh, an algorithm, why not? Right? Move. You know? Okay, guys, up next we are going live from the district. Stay tuned for so much more. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter Lisandra Villa. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, how are you? Lisa, before the politics abyss consumes you, important question. What did you think of Ariana's new single? <laughs> I listened to it once yesterday. It's been stuck in my head ever since. Um, <laughs> more than anything, I want to know what Ariana Grande thinks of the midterms, though. Smart question. Yeah. Um, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News' Chris Geidner. A smart story from Lisa that hinges on a key question. What gets done in the next two years if Dem takes the House and the Senate stays GOP? And how will Democrats deal with their caucus? A look from moderate Democratic Congresswoman Sherry Bustos. Lisa, what is the forefront strategy for Democrats if they just take the House? The strategy for Democrats if they just take the House is to try to work with Republicans where they can. And this is something that, that leadership, in addition to Sherry Bustos, has been saying. They want to find areas that they can work with Republicans on, and that includes Donald Trump, because they don't want to be at 2020, right, when they're trying to get a president elected and not have anything to show for those last two years. So why is Sherry Bustos really important in this whole drama as they figure out what they're going to do if they take the House back? Sherry Bustos is a moderate Democrat. I actually spent some time with her in Illinois where Kyle, our AM to DM producer here in D.C., is actually from that area. Um, and she is interesting because she comes from a rural district that Trump won. Um, so she is in leadership right now, but... If Democrats take the House, she's planning to, to run for a higher position. And it'll be interesting to just see how that, that rural Democrat voice um, settles in the, in the uh, Democratic hierarchy um, for the next two years. So I think that she's someone, like I said, a rising star within the caucus. So she's someone to keep an eye on. So how do 
does this district in Northern Illinois show how Democrats are handling stuff in Republican-leaning districts like this? Not all Democrats have the luxury of coming from a, a blue liberal, safe, safe uh, Democrat stronghold. So Democrats like Sherry Bustos have to walk a more moderate line um, and talk to a lot of constituents who maybe didn't, you know, don't care about Democratic politics at all. They just want to get something done. That's what I was hearing when I sat down with her um, in in Illinois. And, and I, I noticed that that's what people were talking about. We went to a bipartisan uh, roundtable in Sycamore, Illinois, which is just outside of her district. And that, that was sort of the focus was people just want to get something done. And that's a lot different, right, than what you hear from people in maybe coastal areas who are saying, hey, let's subpoena the administration and let's try to get some more done there. So here's a question for you. There's a lot of freshmen incoming this year, a lot of them running on very like bold progressive policy planks. How will they, in your view, interact with a lot of the moderates like Sherry Bustos uh, in trying to actually get something accomplished? Well, that's the big question. So if Democrats do very well in the midterms, um, the focus will be on a lot of that anti-Trump energy that's sort of been building for the last two years and just like what what, what progressive Democrats want to do with that. But again, the question, there, if, if Democrats take the House, the caucus is going to be a lot bigger with more people. You have more room for, for disagreement. You'll have people coming from rural, um, maybe even Republican-leaning districts like Sherry Bustos who are going to have to be defending those spots. Um, so you can't just sort of run away, I think, 2020 progressive uh, progressive politics. They have to keep in mind the bigger picture um, and, and how moderates fit into that will be interesting. So that's something I'll be keeping an eye on. So... How are the Democrats going to handle their caucus in 2020 or just even next year when people are out campaigning for president? Yeah, well, that's going to be an interesting question, too, because there are several House members who themselves are interested in running for president. Um, so, so like I said, it's just going to be a big, diverse group, a lot of first-time candidates that are looking like they might pick up seats. Um, and then a lot, of, a lot of Democrats are hoping a lot of new members from Trump districts that Trump won or Republican held districts. So so it'll it'll be interesting to see how united the caucus can stay. Sherry Bustos is hoping that they'll be very united um, to, to get stuff done in the next two years. Um, awesome. Well, thank you, Lisa. Uh, have a good night's rest tonight for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I'm hoping to sleep in tomorrow in, and expect to be up all Tuesday night. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, speaking of, if you haven't heard yet, AM to DM will have a, a special election night edition tomorrow night to help guide you through the trials and tribulations of weird-looking maps and, even more terrifying, constantly moving prediction needles. Catherine Miller tweeted this. If you want an election night host who's able to answer key questions like, where is this district? You are in luck. Catherine, who will be joining us tomorrow, joins us now. Good morning, Catherine. Hey. Hey, Joining you both. <laughs> hey, Catherine, what do you think now is the most important thing we should be prepared for tomorrow? A lot. I mean, there'll just be a lot of things happening at once. There will be races. It's not like a following a presidential with a midterm because it's not all just like kind of focused into, you know, two race, you know, one or two, uh, the other person. It's like hundreds of races across the country and basically looking for patterns that start in one place and keep Keep happening in other places, and that kind of gives you a sense of how the night's going to go early on. 
Um, so what races will we primarily be watching tomorrow? So we'll be on our show. We'll be focused on a ton of races to give you a sense of what weather, like blue wave is happening. Um, but the three races that we're probably most interested in on in and of themselves are the Texas Senate race, uh, Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke, uh, Florida governor's race, Andrew Gillum running, and then also the Georgia governor's race, which has been in the news a lot lately between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. So speaking of, why do the big races seem to be for the Senate and gubernatorial races this time around? What's really capturing people's attention there? Well, I mean, it kind of depends on which kind of race you're you're running and which part of the country you're in. And I, I think one of the things that, that may be a thing we see on Wednesday, like after the election that people talk about, is the Midwest really bouncing back in a big way for Democrats. So get the submission, for instance, election Whitmer is basically hasn't even really been a story this year because she's expected to win uh, the governorship by so much. And she's a Democrat running. Um, and so it kind of just depends on which state you're looking at. But if you look at Florida, uh, Andrew Gillum has run as a pretty, like, pretty liberal guy. Um, it looks he, he's doing well in the polls. It looks like he could be the first black governor in the state of Florida um, versus a state like Arizona, where you have Kirsten Sinema running, who's kind of running as a center-left uh, candidate. And she's also looking pretty strong. So there, there could be a lot of different weird kind of competing things that happen uh, tomorrow night. So why won't you tell me right now if Ted Cruz or Better O'Rourke will win? Because <laughs> we don't have any results. <laughs> I mean, sure, results, I yeah. guess, Catherine. You should, here's something you should do today. Everybody's like talking about the early vote, early vote numbers, all that kind of stuff. I, I just, I wouldn't pay attention to that too much. Like, don't get your hopes up or down because for in terms of whatever outcome you want because of the early vote numbers. Like, I, just just don't read too much into those. Wait for it. Do, you, all you have to do is wait. Like 24 hours, basically, you'll know happens. So will we really find out anything tomorrow night? I think mean, will we know for sure who has control of the House or the Senate or like who has the majority of governorships in the country tomorrow night? Or is it going to be a more drawn out process, do you think? Well, I can tell you right now that uh, the Republicans will probably still have the majority of the governorships tomorrow night. But uh, and, it, you know, it's it would be really difficult because the way the map is for Democrats to take the Senate back. It, it could happen, but it, it's not really expected to It'd be kind of surprising that it happens. Um, in terms of the House, our anticipation is at about nine o'clock Eastern time tomorrow, we should have a kind of good idea of this is like a really big thing for Democrats because we'd be seeing kind of the same results repeating themselves across different different states and that sort of stuff where there's explosive Democratic turnout, there's lower Republican turnout. So we should, we think we're going to have like a kind of a good idea around nine, nine thirty if it's like definitely going to flip the House. Um, if at that point we don't totally know, we, we think that it may, we may not know tomorrow night. It may come down to just like a handful of races in California, for instance. And that, that might take a couple days, actually, to learn who, who actually controls the house. Well, I am bracing myself. Thank you, Catherine, for this. I'm looking forward to talking to you more tomorrow night. Oh, yeah. See you there. <laughs> All right. Up next, I sit down with actor Leslie Grossman. Stay tuned, everyone, for more AM to DM. Hi guys, welcome back. I am thrilled to be joined by actor Leslie Grossman. She plays Donna Shellstrop on The Good Place and Coco St. Pierre Vanderbilt on American Horror Story Apocalypse. <laughs> that's Leslie, that's a mouthful, but good morning, welcome. It's nice to see you. Are, you really sold the thrilled. I, excited, I'm so. trying, Thank it's you. morning, it's Monday. It. And, and it's raining and with the whole thing. 
but we really are so excited to have you here. <laughs> so, first question. Uh, actually, we have something special really quickly. Ooh. Coco St. Pierre, an American horror story, is yes. a lot of things. Yes. She's a socialite, yes. an influencer. Yes. But she's also a witch with a very special power. Let's take a look really quick. <laughs> Why would you say that? This is a school for witches, right? We help young girls gifted with magical ability reach their potential. Well, I'm about as ungifted as they come. That's not true. Tell Ms. Good what you did. I want to know. Go on. Okay, well, the first time I felt something, I was at Dean and DeLuca with my brother. They have these little samples of biscotti, so Trevor went to eat one when I started tingling and feeling weird. So I smacked the biscotti out of his hand, and we found out that he has celiac disease. So, I mean, I basically saved his life. Interesting. Interesting? I'm a gluten detector. I have goosebumps just all up and down my arm. I mean, that. is that a superpower or is that a superpower? So what would you say, though, is your real life completely useless but very handy superpower? I mean, any Real Housewives information you ever want to know, I know all of it. And there yeah. has now been over 100 women that have been on that show, and I think I know all of them. So that is wow. useless. does not help me in my life, but it's right there. I mean, it if, if you were walking down the streets of New Jersey and see a housewife, <laughs> it's very helpful. That is true, but also useless. <laughs> mm -hmm. So last season on American Horror Story, it was all about the aftermath of the 2016 election. Correct. What was it like to be a part of that while also living through it while it was airing? You know, um, it, it was intense because, you know, people always ask me because I'm on Horror Story, like, what are your fears? Are you afraid of clowns? Or, you know, what, is, what are the things that scare you? Well, I don't have those mm -hmm. fears. I'm not claustrophobic. I don't have that stuff. Mm -hmm. I am afraid of gun violence. <laughs> I'm afraid of my, my rights being reduced. So those are things that are very real-life fears for mm -hmm. me. So it was sort of cathartic in a weird way, also sort of intense. Um, but I think that, that they handled it pretty brilliantly. So has, do you think being on the show really helped you face your fears or has it just made you more like nervous about the apocalypse that is coming for us all in 2040? Well, I, mean, I think we all share a fear of nuclear war. So mm. I don't know that the show has <laughs> helped me work through my fear of that. That's something I think all of us should be a little bit afraid of. But Skosh. you know, the truth is this, that working on the show um, is not scary, it is so fun. And we have the best time and it's such a wonderful work environment. We all get along so well. These are my real life buddies and homies oh. and we have such a good time. So it's not scary and all the blood and gore mm -hmm. is actually fascinating to watch. All right. Because the FX people, there's a reason they've won a million Emmys. They're right. so good at what they do. So it's so fun to watch them do their thing. And this year I had to have a bunch of masks, you know, prosthetic masks right. made of my head and my neck and to watch how they go from that stage to the actual thing that's on mm -hmm. camera. Anyway, I'm a dork. Are I you love just sitting in this like workshop just eating popcorn while they it's work? It's interesting. I mean, it really is interesting and there was a scene where I got knifed in the head mm -hmm. and to see how it looked so good. <laughs> You're like, like that's it, my head. Exactly, and it looked so real and awesome and they're just so good at it. So, it's not a scary workplace at all. It's actually really fun. Well, tomorrow is the midterms. Uh, <laughs> that speaking is, of scary that things. That is scary, yes. Segway. We're all white-knuckling it, aren't we? Uh, yeah. But what would you say has been the most annoying thing about this election cycle? I mean, <laughs> that is a very loaded question. Um, you know, I don't want to say that it's been annoying. I mean, mm -hmm. no. Okay, I'm going to be careful in what I say. What I think is annoying is uh, somebody trying to make me terrified of a caravan that's really full of people that are just looking for a better life for their children. I find that annoying. I find, um, I don't know if you heard about what happened with um, the woman 
running for the, is, she's running for the, it's Stacey, I can't Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Thank you, it's yes. Stacey Abrams, it's Monday morning and I haven't had enough coffee. But there were these horrible racist robocalls mm -hmm. that they did after Oprah decided to support her. I find that annoying. Um, annoying is a very kind term for what I really feel about it. So I think um, the fake fear that they're trying to fill people with is, is annoying to me, but we need to get out and vote and um, I'm excited. All right, shifting gears a little Sorry, bit. Sorry, that was not eloquent. Go it on. was it was completely right. eloquent for ten thirty on a Monday morning. Aren't we I would all say. just exhausted already from this election that's coming up? We've been look, waiting for two years. Look, yeah. okay, but also shifting pro projects. Yes. You play Eleanor Shellstrop's mother on The Good Place. Yes, I do. Who were your inspirations for that? Very vibrant character. Well, I hate to name check the housewives again, but to me, she was an Orange County housewife. Right. That was sort of what I dug into for her, mm -hmm. and. Um, also, she she really is the worst mother that's ever existed on the planet. She's just the so worst. So it was. It was fun. I love working on that show, and mm. working with Kristen Bell is so much fun. And when I first started it, I played um, her mother in flashback with a little mm -hmm. girl. So it was sort of, it's fun to work with somebody and play their mother that you guys are peers. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> But, I mean, look, she is younger than me for sure, but something really terrible would have had to have happened for me to have actually given birth Yikes. to her. Yikes. Dark. But anyway, <laughs> sorry to go dark. But that, that is such a fun show, and I love playing that character. She's great. You recently posted this photo, speaking of how much fun you have, yes. of you and Ted Danson <gasps> on set with the caption, Look at him. One Miss Donna Shellstrop makes her triumphant return as maybe the worst mother ever to the best angel that is Kristen Bell on The yes. Brilliant The Good Place. Also, I am high-key a little bit in love with Ted Danson, as you can tell yeah. in this pic I forced him to take with me. Talk to us about Ted. What was that like? I'll talk to you about him all day. Tell um, us about his silver mane. He, first of all, he's the nicest friendliest, most lovely person, mm -hmm. who I've admired his work for years, um, to watch him work is a joy. Every single take is different, and every single take is the funniest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> oh, He's just wonderful. He just exudes the best energy. And I just felt so lucky that I got to work with him. I was dorked out, though. And I don't usually ask for pictures, but on my last day, I was like, can I please have a picture? Just and he was so nice about it. <laughs> but you can see, like, I couldn't really control my face. Like, I'm making a too big of a smile. Like, I can't, I need to learn to be chill. Like, look, oh, that's a crazy smile. No, face. you're fine. That is a, that, <laughs> I just met my and hero. Look how cute he looks. God. Oh, is he adorable? <laughs> Love him. All right, so. As you've mentioned a couple of times now, you are a big Housewives fan. Yes, I didn't I'm need to bring it up so much. No, it's yes. okay because here's a question for you. I'm sure you've thought it long and hard about this. What would your tagline be? Oh, people ask me this all the time. It would probably be like, I've got a big mouth, but an even bigger heart. Oh. That's pretty good, right? That's not That's bad. not That's terrible. Not okay. All right, okay then. People have asked you that all the time. Yeah. What would the tagline be for, let's go with your mother. If your mother were to be on Real Housewives, what would her tagline be? What am I doing on this show? I have no business being here. That's what her tagline, get me off of this show! That would be my mother's tagline. Help me! Is that a good tagline? That's a pretty good tagline. Thanks. Uh, one last question for me. Can you do a reenactment of your favorite in the history of the franchise, yes. Housewives line? Oh my God, there's so many. Gotta choose. Let's go with the iconic Countess mm. Luann when they were on vacation and mm. She's had a man in her room, and the other women are uncomfortable that there were strange men being brought into the house, and she's very hungover wearing a bikini. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she says, be cool. Don't be all uncool. <laughs> that was perfect. It was, I, that was, it was like, a drink. It was like me that? watching the That's scene called space work? live. That's called uh, space work. So your, mimer, your mimery is thank you. genius. Thank you. Leslie, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. you can watch American Horror Story Apocalypse Wednesdays on FX. Up next, Stephanie Talk talks with Nicole Chung about her new memoir, memoir <laughs> All You Can Ever Know. Stay tuned, everyone.
Welcome back. Esther tweeted, just finished Nicole Chung's memoir, All You Can Ever Know, about being adopted, about growing up Asian in a white town, also about being a mother, a daughter, and finding her place in the world. Absorbing, beautifully written. I totally agree. I finished the book this weekend and I couldn't put it down. And Nicole is here. She is the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine and, of course, the author of All You Can Ever Know. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about this book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So your book was so interesting to me because I, I was telling you before we started, I kind of feel like I know you now because it's such a interesting look into your life and your story and you have such an interesting story. I have to imagine that this is something that you've thought about your whole life, writing all of this stuff down. Why now? It's interesting, you know, every time I get the question about, like, why did you decide to write this book, like, why now, um, the answer changes a little bit. So um, I actually didn't ever really think I'd write a book about adoption. It's really only been the past, like, three or four years that I felt really motivated to do it. Um, I started out, like, not writing about it at all and um, only really began, like, in my, like, mid to late 20s. I think I just wasn't ready. There was a lot I wasn't really ready to question. You know, like, I write in the book about the founding narrative of my life, and for a long time it really did feel like enough, even though we didn't, like know anything about like my birth family. Um, so it was really when I just started to publish like an essay here or there about adoption and got all these great questions from people, I realized there's like curiosity here. I have things to say, you know, the adoptee experience on adoption is one that was kind of underrepresented. And so that made me think maybe this is a book, maybe a full length project would allow me to like explore this and all the detail and nuance that I wanted. It's, it's a book about adoption, obviously, but it's about transracial adoption, but it's also really about, I feel like, mothers and daughters and sisters and the relationship that women have with other women. Was part of it, was part of the reason you wanted to write the book because you have two daughters yourself and you wanted to share their, your story with them as well? That's such a good question, a little bit. I will say when I first started, when I was searching for my birth family and when I found them and reconnected, everything I was learning, again, I was not thinking about writing about it for the public, I was writing like journal entries and I was writing them mainly to remember details to share them with my kids, it's true. Um, so yeah, that was definitely part of it. I was really motivated to have this story for them uh, to look back on and my niece as well. Yeah, because you found you ended up finding your sister. Yes. Spoiler alert! <laughs> um, yeah. Your sister, who also has a daughter as well, and I, I just loved the kind of uh, mirror that you had in your life between your two daughters and yeah. you and your sister. It was such a beautiful story. So you talked a lot about growing up in a mostly white town, mm -hmm. or pretty much all white town from what it seems like, um, as the adopted daughter of white parents. What made you want to share that aspect of your story, and what do you think that people don't understand, especially white people, don't understand about transracial adoption. Um, you know, I really wanted to tell this story, again, because as I mentioned, I think that we know a lot about adoption, or we think that we do. I kept encountering these narratives that are mostly, you know, they're dominated by, like, adoptive parents or by industry professionals, and while I think those are, like, valid and important viewpoints, there really wasn't a lot out there, like, from the adoptee perspective. Um, I was really surprised when I started writing about this topic how many people would tell me they had never read an, a transracial adoptee on adoption before. Um, and so it just really felt like, in part, there was, there was kind of some work to do to like um, address that kind of gap in the mainstream narrative around adoption. Um, one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things I wanted to write about in terms of growing up in a very white area, you know, I went to a very small private like parochial school where I was often the only Asian kid. Um, and not just like how isolating that was personally, but I wanted people to maybe think about like what it's like for a lot of, say, people of color in very all-white 
families or spaces or communities, like I think over and over, you run up against people's very good intentions, sometimes not, but often good intentions, and you really realize like what the limits of empathy are. You know, like there is, it was just like people were very much, I think many people trying to understand where I was coming from growing up, but like no one else really had that same experience, so it was difficult. So I did want people to like read this and then think about like what it what it feels like to be in that environment, like as like the only or one of a few people of color. Um, and especially what it's like for a child, you know, who grows up with this is like their default. Um, because for me, it was many years before I really had the language to like express what I was experiencing, whether it was isolation or confusion about my identity or actual racism. Like I didn't really have the words to describe that to anybody. I know, I think a lot of white people in particular, especially back you know, when you were growing up, had this sense that they had all the answers. And I think what your story really says is like, maybe we should listen to the people that it's actually happening to instead of just assuming we all know what we're talking about. So you write a lot about how you thought for so many years about your birth parents and mm -hmm. finding your birth parents, and then you actually did find them, and that experience ended up being so different from what you expected, but not necessarily bad. Were you hoping that other adoptees would find inspiration to look for your, look for their parents as well? Or are you, are you hoping that maybe just that narrative around that will have become a little more nuanced? I mean, definitely more the latter. I think it's such a personal experience to everybody. Of course, like, not all adoptees have the same experiences or want the same things. I've met plenty of adoptees who have told me, you know, I don't have any interest in searching for my birth family, and I believe them. You know, that it's a, seems like a very um, legit, like, view to have. And I think it's also one I shared for many years. Like, despite my curiosity, there were many years at which I would have been just unable to even really consider, like, a search or a reunion. Um, so I do understand that. So it was less about, like, inspiring other adoptees to search because they might not really have an interest um, or might not be able to find much. You know, it was really a privilege that I was able to because a lot of adoptees, there isn't as much history to find. Um, the door's just kind of closed. Uh, but I did want, I was hoping if they were interested that they could take something from this, whether it's like uh, perhaps not repeating a couple of my mistaken assumptions or um, just knowing they aren't alone because there are so many of us who've been through this. Um, but definitely, I think I think that was one big one big reason I wrote it was certainly I was thinking about like fellow adoptees and transracial adoptees in particular. I know, I think one of the most interesting things about your book was it's something that I personally have never experienced, but I learned so much from your book and it made me think about so many different things. So I encourage everyone to read it. It's a great read. It came out recently. And Cole, thank you so much for coming on and talking a little sure. bit more about this with me. Up next, Claire King from Tasty recommends hacks for your kitchen. Welcome back. This is Work Smarter, Not Harder, brought to you by the new Google Home Hub, which helps me tackle my morning routine. Kevin Varzad tweeted, yeah, cooking is healthy and cheap, but you have to go to the store to get ingredients to make it your apartment with a stove. Where does it end? Look, listen, I love cooking, but I know that at the end of a day, you don't want to have to go through that entire process and cooking can be hard. So Claire King, head of Cul culinary at BuzzFeed Tasty, joins us now to tell us how to make it a little bit easier. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So Tasty has its own cooking app. How does it help new and experienced home cooks, would you say? Well, for us, I think when we developed it with the BuzzFeed tech team, actually, we were really partners on it, which I think was a huge help. So. Being from our side of it, who's really in touch with the audience and 
you know, what recipes people really like to cook at home, mm -hmm. uh, we were able to influence the way that we built the app. So it's step by step, it slows things down for you, it has the video to match the text as well. Okay. Um, so if there's, you know, some like lingo that you don't understand that's in a lot of old recipes. Um, Julianne, who's yeah. she? <laughs> exactly. So we show you how to do it in the, in the video as well. And I know um, the videos go so quickly sometimes, so kind of making it and breaking it out step by step is really helpful for people at home. What are some of the other apps that people can use to help step up their game, would you say? I think, I mean, for me personally, like I still love Instagram to look at for inspiration. You know, we're so visually driven these days that having all the, these different options out there is really cool. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all the, the big um, grocery stores now have a bunch of apps too, so you can see like what are sales going on in different stores and a lot of really simple week weeknight recipes as well. Nice. Okay, so speaking of inspiration, Gina Grad tweeted, so inspired by someone who truly has an appetite for life, Samin's Netflix docuseries Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat is so delightful, especially for an amateur cook like me. Each episode explores one of these flavor makers in a different part of the world, and it's just fantastic. Everyone has been talking about this show. How, but how do cooking shows actually help us grow as cooks as we're watching them, would you say? I think the one thing that is so great about that show is it shows you just how global some of these flavors are and how familiar they can be as well. So some people think that, you know, oh, I don't like Korean food or I don't like Indian food, but you really see how many similar spices and techniques are in uh, food from all across the world. Um, so in one part, it's kind of breaking down that barrier a little bit and making people hopefully a little bit more comfortable with trying something new. Hmm. What are some gadgets, would you say, that you can add to your kitchen to make cooking just, you know, a little bit easier? I, weirdly, everyone on Tasty jokes all the time, I love tongs so tongs much. Tongs are great. <laughs> I use tongs for kind of everything. It's like a spoon. It's like, I mean, I literally, I use them for everything and everyone should have a few of them. Um, that and like a good wooden spoon. I know these are like very classic, like easy things. No, they're but classic, they're but they're important. Yeah. Like I only own one set of metal tongs, which is a problem, and <laughs> one wooden spoon, which is not dishwasher safe and is very frustrating to me, but you gotta have We need to hook spoon. you up with some tasty cookware then. Clearly, <laughs> I, I would love that. Uh, do you have any final tips for someone who wants to try something new in the kitchen? this week? I would say when you're looking for a new recipe, look for like one pot meals or under 30 minutes or something on Google or on the Tasty app. There's a bunch of options out there and those are a little bit less intimidating recipes that you can get done quickly after a work day or something. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Claire, thank you so much for joining me here today. Sure. Really appreciate it. Foodie Twitter, we need your help. Send us all of your cooking inspiration, tips, or just drool-worthy food pictures using hashtag aim to dm Up next, Katie and I have been reading your tweets throughout the show and now we're calling you out. Welcome back, guys. We asked you if you got reckless with your exes after hearing thank you next. This. Kirsten Baptiste, you said, I'm in an over five-year relationship. What I look like even acknowledging an ex's existence. Far as I'm concerned, they're not alive anymore. Which, wow. Yeah. There. In Ariana Grande's case, that's kind of true. Oh my gosh, it's too early for this, Katie. Princess Leia <laughs> oh, has no. a guest request. Uh, since one of his tweets was read as a fire tweet, re-upping my campaign's last petition to bring on Jesus and Miro on the show. I mean, I hard co-signed that. I miss them daily on Viceland, and I just want them back here. If they can showtime to let them come here, that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, Joe come Lee on. has some advice for people who aren't as excited for daylight savings as I am. Vitamin D supplements work, y'all. Dead serious. After my PCP told me how deficient I was, they were like, yeah, your mood will probably lift a bit. 
Fish, it was like going from Adele to Carly Rae Jepsen after it kicked in. That is some great advice. I definitely need vitamin D. I, am, I know for a fact I am vitamin D deficient. Oh, really? Yes, but I do nothing about it because I am trash. Yeah. And so during the summer months, like, yeah, it's cool. I got this sunshine. So I need to go and get like thousand milligram pills for my you, doctor shortly. Yeah, you need some vitamin BDE. But, like oh, Ariana Grande has. Hey, <laughs> I see what you <laughs> did there. She is hip and with it, kids. All right, I want to say thank you to our guests. Leslie Grossman, Emily Tampkin, Lisandra Villa, Catherine Miller, Stephanie McNeil, Nicole Chung, and Claire King. Um, and tomorrow, uh, Stephanie and Zara Hirji will be co-hosting. We will see you then, guys. Thank you all. Have a good day.